Well, a special welcome to those of you who are here for the very first time. Uh, we always have people every week and, uh, that are brand new. We just want to welcome you. And inside of your, your weekend program is a white message note sheet. And we use that every week during our time of teaching. So if this is, especially if you're brand new, you want to make sure you pull that out right now. And I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump on in. Father, thank you for what you're doing here at our church and the way you're teaching us week by week what it means to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. And God, we thank you for this study that we've been in, um, that you've been kind of walking this out, what it means to be part of your, your movement here in Rocky Peak. And so we pray that as we go into this time of teaching, you would come and as always be our teacher. We just want to open ourselves up to the work of your spirit right here and right now in our lives to speak as he will. And we pray you give us ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our story starts today way back in the second century A.D. So if you can rewind the clock back to, let's say, 166 A.D. And uh, I, I don't know how much reading you've done of kind of the ancient world, but the ancient world was a dangerous place to live. Uh, it was a tough place to live. We, we often forget this now. We're so used to our modern conveniences and so on. You get, you get injured, you go to the hospital, you get sick, you get antibiotics, you know the whole drill. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. It was a world of natural disasters, uh, military sieges, uh, wars on your doorstep. Uh, it was a tough place uh, to live. Uh, the floods, there would be fires like ours, except they'd take out whole cities uh, at times or whole blocks just routinely. Uh, plague was a huge problem. You'd have uh, diseases come in, could wipe out a whole, uh, whole like, city or maybe 30, 40% of the population. Um, I know that, for example, in the ancient city of Antioch, which was the Apostle Paul's home base for his ministry, that one historian has done research, and while the Roman Empire was in charge there for hundreds of years, uh, they had 41 natural or social disasters over those few hundred years. So it was like one every 15 years, major tragedy. Um, one of the reasons for this was just the structure of ancient cities. They're, they weren't as large as our cities, by and large. But uh, most of the people would tend to live in like multi-story apartment buildings, but they were very kind of rickety. And then they would tend to be one-story or uh, one-room apartments. And so like a whole family or a group of families would live in one apartment. And every apartment would have its own, um, its own fire. You know, it's like its own open fire where you do your cooking. So you can imagine the danger of that, the smoke of that. And you can see how like uh, why, why whole city blocks would burn down because it was just a very dangerous deal. Uh, most cities didn't have uh, modern sanitation in any way, and so human waste would get thrown out of these uh, uh, multi-story buildings into the, the street below. They were very narrow. So imagine, you know, no, no uh, street lights, uh, human waste uh, uh, on the ground, on the streets. Uh, the city's uh, filled with smoke, overcrowded, and so it was like a perfect storm for disease. And, and like I say, when uh, uh, plague was a, a huge problem, like if a plague like smallpox came through a city, it was not uh, uncommon at all, like I say, for maybe 30 to 40% of the whole population to be wiped out. Dangerous place to live. And when a plague would come to a city, uh, it was very common for most of the people just to head for the hills. It was like they didn't have antibiotics, and so they would just take off. And often they would just leave their sick behind. Even if they're close family, they're close friends. It was a pagan world. They did not have a real high value in human life. And it was kind of like, hey, you're on your own. I'm out of here because I don't want to get sick too. And so they just leave the sick to die on their own. But, uh, but all that was about to change with the movement of Jesus. Right? 
So today we're continuing on this series that we've been in now since February, and it's a series called The Way. For those of you who are brand new, and every week I know there's new people, so I like to take about 60 to 90 seconds just to stop, kind of rewind where we are. This series is a study of the life and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. So if you're new at this whole Christianity thing, uh, he's one of the great leaders of, of the, the Christian movement, uh, one of the great Christ followers, Christian teachers, and so on. And what we're doing in this series is we're coming alongside of him week by week, and we're asking him to mentor us. Paul, could you tell us what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, and what does it mean to be part of this ancient movement that in the early church was first called The Way? And so every week we, we do the same thing. We start off with his teaching in his letter to the Romans, which is like his longest and most famous letter. And we use it as a gateway or an entry point into the rest of his writings. And so today, if you have your Bible, we're in chapter 13 of Romans. So I encourage you to take that out. The topic today is love. And this is not the first time he's raised the topic. In fact, if you were here last week, he talked about love quite a bit in chapter 12. And last week, I promised you that we'd kind of go over it quickly last week, but we'd circle back this week to talk more about true love and what it looks like. So we're going to do that today. So we're going to start off in chapter 13, see what he says about the law of love, and then later in the service, we'll, we'll kind of come back and talk about chapter 12 and some of the principles of what true love looks like as he illustrates it. So there, if you've got your Bible, chapter 13, and we will start at uh, verse 8. Romans 13. In verse 8, he says, um, Let no debt remain outstanding except the, the continuing debt to love one another. Now, uh, when you read the Bible, uh, uh, context is king, right? In other words, as, as a church, as we learn to interpret Scripture, that if you're interpreting Scripture, it's all about context. And one mistake we don't want to make is take a verse here, a verse there out of context and just build a house on it. We, we want to learn to read scriptures all the way through to understand what it meant in the original authors uh, was writing it. And this is a great example. Um, he says, let no debt remain outstanding, but to follow what you're saying, you have to go back to verse 7. Uh, you remember in verse 7, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about our relationship as Christ followers with the government and politics. Remember that? And he ends that in verse 7. But section by saying that um, give everyone what you owe him, notice in the government, uh, if you owe taxes, pay taxes, if revenue, then revenue, if respect, again to talk about government leaders, if respect, then respect, if honor, then honor. And then he goes on in verse 8 and says, and let no debt remain outstanding. And so what he's saying is, as Christ followers, with the government, we need to pay our taxes, and we need to be good citizens. We talked about that. And then he kind of flows in. He says, in fact, in all of life, we need to pay our bills. That as Christ followers, we need to be financially responsible. People that stand behind what we say, pay our bills, uh, don't buy more than we can afford, and those kinds of things. He said, but there's one exception. He says, the one debt that we can never really pay off is the debt of love. Because Jesus has loved us, and now he's asked us to love one another as he's loved us. And so that's a debt we can never uh, repay. And so verse 8 says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt that we owe to Jesus to love one another. Now, he says something really profound. He says, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Now, you might want to underline that. This is the key phrase, key statement of this whole passage he who loves his fellow man 
has fulfilled the law. In other words, the Old Testament has a lot of laws, right? Um, in fact, there's 613 of them in the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, 613. And, and what he says is, if you love your fellow man, you've actually kind of covered the, all of them. You've fulfilled the law. Now, this was not something new uh, that the Apostle Paul came up with on his own. This was actually teaching of Jesus. See if this sounds familiar. Back in Matthew 22, uh, Jesus was once asked by a man, he said, um, Jesus, of all the 613 laws in the Old Testament, which one would be, would you say, is the most important? So like, let's like if David Letterman was doing the top 613 countdown, like what would be, when you get to number one, what would be number one? What would be the number one law that you just don't want to mess with this one? If, if you don't want to break one law, you just want to keep one law, which one would it be? And you remember that Jesus said, oh, that's really easy. He said the number one priority for God is that you love God with all your heart, uh, that we're to love God passionately. He's to be the most, most important person in our life, the top priority to please him. He's our number one love, right? So we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, and you didn't really ask this, but let me give you number two, kind of two for price of one. It's Lucky Thursday or whatever. And he said, so the second one is that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, now, now here's the thing. He said, all the rest of the Old Testament law, they all hang on those two. In other words, all the other laws are simply a footnote, an explanation, an illustration of what does it look like to love God? What does it look like to love people? You see? Now, there's an important lesson here, and I want to do a little sidebar for just a moment. You know, as Christ's followers, it's really important that we get a clear view on what the Bible is. Often we grow up, or even when we first come to Christ, we kind of have this image that that the Bible or God's laws are restrictive. You know, we often think of them as, is it like, well, the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, that what God is up there doing is basically saying, hey, that person's having too much fun down there. We need to, like, have a law against that. A little fun's okay, but let's not go over the top. So let's, like, we'll write a new law, that's it. You can't do that because that would be too much fun, right? And we often have this mindset that God's law is restrictive. And what the lesson of the Bible is, no, God's law is never restrictive. It's always protective. Huge difference. That every law in the Bible is just an expression of what love looks like. And we'll, we'll look at several examples. So if God says something like, hey, don't, uh, don't steal your neighbor's wife, that may feel restrictive to you, but it feels very protective to your neighbor. You see? And, and so, you say, hey, don't steal his stuff. Oh, come on. Why do I have to do that? Why can't I just steal his stuff? And it feels very good to him that God has said this. So God's law is never restrictive trying to hold us back in life. God's law is the path to life. It's telling us if you want to live life at its fullest, this is the way to live it. And it's so important as a church we get this. Because otherwise we'll always hold back in God's law. When we get to a law that we don't like, it's like, well, I don't like that law. And, like, and we'll be tempted to break it, thinking that if we break it, we'll really get the most out of life. And the reality is we'll ruin our life, right? We always rip off our own life. Okay, so, uh, so this is what Paul uh, is saying here. He's going back to the teaching of Jesus, and he's saying that, this, that the, if, you've, if, you've, uh, if you've obeyed, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you've obeyed the whole law. It's just built, he's just kind of reiterating what Jesus taught us. Now, in verse 9, uh, he gives some examples, and he's going to go back to the Ten Commandments. Now, how many commandments are the Ten Commandments? 
How many are there? Okay, good. Yeah, 9 o'clock didn't get that. Um, yeah, there's 10, right? And so he's going to give us four examples, numbers 6, 7, 8, and 10. He says, okay, let, let me give you an example. He says, the commandments, verse 9, like do not commit adultery. Okay? So don't rip off your neighbor's spouse. Or do not murder. Don't rip off your neighbor's life. Do not steal. Don't rip off your neighbor's stuff. Do not covet. Don't even think about ripping off your neighbor's wife, life, or stuff. He says, all these commandments are summed up in this one, oh, he said, catch this, and whatever other command there may be. Do you catch this? Whatever other command there may be. Doesn't really pick a command. He says, whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what I want you to catch. The law of love is the one rule that kind of rules them all, isn't it? It's like all the laws in the Bible are just telling you this is what love looks like in real life. Okay, so then he goes on. um, Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All right? So so here's what we're going to do. This is the key passage we're looking at today. And the time we have, I want to do a couple things. First, I want to focus on the one big picture principle that flows out that's just critical for us as Christ followers to hang on to. You know, to understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, we want to look at one big picture principle that's critical. And then secondly, we want to come back and we want to say, well, what does true love really look like? It's one thing to say to love others, but what does that really look like? And in chapter 12, the passage we looked at last week, the Apostle Paul gives us several really practical examples of here's what true love looks like. Okay, so we're going to do both things. So there in your note sheet, there's a section. It's called the Law of Love, the Big Picture Principle. So let's fill in the blanks. Let's jump in there. Okay, here's the big picture principle. It's so important for us to catch that love is the rule that rules them all. Any of you see uh, Lord of the Rings? There's uh, one ring that rules them all, right? Well, this is the Apostle Paul's version, that love is the rule that rules them all. Now catch this, so important for this catch. There are so many things that we're supposed to do and to be as Christ followers, right? We're to be gentle, we're to be compassionate, we're to be kind, we're not to get uh, angry or get rid of our anger, we're to not be bitter, we're to all these things, we're to love our, you know, just all these different things. But but what Paul wants us to understand is when you break it down, following Jesus becomes pretty simple. It's basically love God, love people. Love is the rule that rules them all. And so whenever it gets too complex for you, you just go back to the basics. Now, it's not always easy to figure out exactly what love would do in a given situation. We'll talk about that more later. But the, the principle is clear that all the rules in the Bible, in fact, look at this. What Paul even uses this word in chapter 13 and verse, uh, uh, verse 9, the end of it, it says, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one rule. You see it? So there's one rule that rules them all as Christ followers. So what this means is that in every situation of our life, Every relationship, uh, relationship you're in, whether it's with a marriage, friends, your kids, the job site, doesn't matter. Whatever relationship you're in, there's one question we have to get in the habit of asking. And the question is very simple, is what would love do in this situation at this time? 
And if you can answer that question, then you know what you're supposed to do. And life is very simple. Now, uh, of course, this flows out of Jesus' own teaching. And we just looked at Matthew 22, talked about that. Love, your na- love God, love your neighbor, top two commands, right? But I want to take a little bit more time and go deeper with this into the teaching of Jesus and then walk you through some teaching in the New Testament on this law of love. Because what I want you to catch is the law of love is our core moral code. It's our co- core code of conduct. It's, the, it's, it's our ethic. As, as Christ followers, there's one ethic in the New Testament. It's the ethic of love, right? So let's talk about Jesus. We talked about this time in his life when he's asked, what's the top commandment? We went through that. But there's a couple other examples I want to give you this. Uh, do you remember the story of the last night Jesus was with his men before he was arrested? And remember he washed their feet. Y'all remember that story? And you remember how that goes at the end of the story, after he washes their feet, he says to them, man, I'm about to leave. You're going to carry on this movement. So I've got a new command for you. And this is kind of, this is the, the command that kind of is going to mark the movement, all right? Here's my new command. I want you to love one another as what? Oh, my goodness. So sad. Now, see, I was praising you before. The 9 o'clock did so much better at this. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Very good. All right. All right. Good. I got my hope back. Um, yeah, and so he says, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. Use me as the model. I want you to love one another. That's kind of the, the mark of this movement. And then he said something very significant. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my followers by the love you have for one another. Remember that? So he said, this is the mark of the movement. It's not having a bumper sticker on your car, right? It's not it's wearing a certain kind of clothes or not wearing a certain kind of clothes. Or, it's, it's not in that. It, it's the mark of that you're a true Christ follower is the love that we have for one another. Okay, let's, let's fast forward a couple chapters to John 15. Uh, same night, Jesus with his men, he gives another very famous teaching on the vine and the branch. He says, I'm the vine, you are the... Much better. And they're the branches. And he said, uh, if you want to bear much fruit in your life, just like a grape, like a grape vine uh, bears the fruit through the branches, he said, if you want to bear fruit in your life, the key is to stay connected to me. He said, because in the same way that a branch has to stay connected to the vine in order to bear fruit, so we have to stay connected to Jesus in our life if we're going to be fruitful lives and make a difference. And so you say, well, okay, so how do we stay connected? He makes it very clear in that passage. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll stay connected. In other words, if you obey me. And, but if you ask the next question, well, which ones? You've given so many. It's very clear twice in that passage. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Remember? And so on that last night with Jesus where he's downloading to them the top important things of the movement, he says, here's the one thing you need to know as you move forward. You need to love one another. That's my command. This is how everyone will know you're the real deal. Okay, So when the Apostle Paul comes along in chapter 13 and he says, there's one rule that rules them all. If, you've, if you love one another, you've fulfilled the law. He's building on the teaching of Jesus. And once you see this, what you see is that it's, you see it all over the New Testament. There's one rule that rules them all for us. Get rid of all the complexity. Get simple. And you get simple. It's, hey, love one another. That's it. Find out what love would do in every situation. 
And once you catch on to this, you see it throughout the New Testament. For example, there in your note sheet, and we already looked at Romans 13, right? Well, Paul, let's see what else he says. Galatians 5. You see that passage? In Galatians 5, he says we're to serve one another in what? In love, okay? And then he goes on, the entire law, the whole Testament, is summed up in this single command, love your neighbor as yourself. You see it? So he says it again. Go to the next passage, 1 Timothy. He's, uh, Paul's mentoring this young pastor, Timothy. He says, Timothy, the goal of this command, now in other words, the goal of all our teaching as pastors, the goal of our teaching is what? Love. You see that? Um, which comes from three things. It comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul says, Timothy, we need to teach on these things. We need to teach how to have a pure heart. We need to teach on how to have a clean conscience, do the right thing. We need to teach how to trust God, have a sincere faith. But the reason we're teaching is because the goal of it all is love. Because if you don't have a pure heart, if you don't have a clean conscience, if you don't have a sincere faith, you can't love people. You see? And so, so here at the church, we're going to teach about a lot of different topics, but sooner or later, they all come back to preparing us to love. Um, if you were to study the little book of 1 John in the New Testament, all about the priority of love, we don't have time to go there, but I do want to go to the book of James there on your note sheet. Uh, James was the half-brother of Jesus. Remember that? He's, he's same mother, different father. And he writes this. He says, if you keep the royal law, what's oh, a royal law? The royal law is the law of the king, right? The king's law. If you keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing right. That's the bottom line. So what's he saying? Well, Jesus came to start a new kingdom, right? He's the king. Jesus is the king. He starts a kingdom. There's one rule in his kingdom. It's called the royal law, the law of his kingdom, love one another. And so wherever you go in the New Testament, the authors come back to say it's all about love. It's all about love. That is, that's kind of the mark of the movement. It's the one rule that rules them all. And so the question we need to be asking in every situation as Christ followers is what would love do in this situation? Now, like I said, not always easy to figure out. But that's the question we need to be asking. And once we find out what love would do, we know what our assignment is. Okay? So that's the big picture principle because as a church, it's so important that we don't get caught up in the minutia sometimes that we're really clear on what's most important. And what's most important, you love God, you love one another. You see, and you've done that, you've done it all. Okay? So that's the big picture. Now, um, it raises a question, though. Well, could you be more specific? Okay, so like, okay, love one another, but could, Paul, could you help us out? What does true love look like in real action? And that's where he's going to go. We're going to go back to chapter 12, and he's going to make several powerful statements about what true love looks like. And so we're going to take some time. And there in your note sheet, you have a section called true love. What's it look like? And we're going to focus on four principles that he spells out in this uh, short little section of chapter 12. So here we go. Now, number one, I've got to warn you. Number one kind of has that duh factor um, built in. Uh, this is one of those ones where it's almost afraid to say. Because if I say it, it's kind of like, Mike, are you kidding me? You spent all week on this. This is the best you can do. That's it. Gone to seminary. That's all you got for us. 
You know, it's, it's really your best. I, mean, I just bet you prayed over this one. But, but just stick with me on this because there's something powerful here, okay? So here's how the principle goes. True love truly cares. Wow. It's profound, Mike. Glad I came to church today. True love truly cares. Um, now, it is profound. Let me tell you why. On one level, this is obvious. Well, of course true love really cares. I mean, that's what love is. It's caring about people, right? It's like, I know, obvious. But, but how many of you have heard this teaching? You don't have to raise your hands, but I bet a lot of us in this room have heard this teaching before, that in the Bible, true love is not about a feeling. True love is an action. Have you heard that before? Yeah, we've often heard this. So it's love's not, because you can't control your feelings, so God wouldn't command us to love people and control, you know, feeling because we can't control our feelings. But here's what I want to suggest. There's certain truth to that. As we'll see today, that true love is more than feelings. But here's what I want to suggest. True love is more than feelings, but it's not less than feelings. Okay? That true love in a biblical sense is a love that truly cares. There's a warmth. There's an affection. There's a band of brothers quality about it. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you, th- you think of a, a group of soldiers who've gone through a war, the love they might have, the group of, of uh, athletes that uh, are a football player in a huddle, the kind of the, the love that they might have on a close team, that there is definitely that sense in the body of Christ that, that no, we, we're not just doing the right things here. We really care about one another. For example, I don't know if you've ever had someone uh, love you and not feel very loved. Have you ever had that happen to you? Uh, for example... Um, that someone comes to you and they ask your forgiveness because they know as a Christian they should do it. But you don't feel any love coming your way? You ever been there? Or someone brings you a pot roast after you have the baby. Thanks for the roast, but you're not feeling the love. They're just kind of doing the right thing. And many times, uh, uh, in fact, I have a, a friend who wrote a song, said, uh, I love you in the Lord. Have you ever heard that? Like something like, I love you in the Lord. The song goes, I love you in the Lord, but I hate you in me. <laughs> it's great. You know, the Christian community is like, well, I just love you in the Lord, man, you know, which means like, I can't personally, personally, I can't stand you, but in the Lord, I love you, right? Well, if you've ever had so that like happen, you know, that, like who wants to be loved that way? Like, do you really want God to come to you and say, hey, Mike, I really love you. Um, personally, I don't really like you. But just want you to know, I love you because I'm God I'm supposed to love, right? Uh, do, do you want your husband or your wife to love you that way? You know, I know it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to bring you flowers. Personally, I don't really care, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> you see? And often in the Christian community, we get this picture of love as love is just doing the right thing out of duty. And, and there's some truth to that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But here's what I want you to catch that in the Bible, that the love that God calls us to is a love of true affection. There's a real warmth to it. That it's a brotherly love. In fact, that's what Paul calls it. In, verse, um, in chapter 12 and verse uh, 10, let's take a look at that. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, underline that. Be devoted in brotherly love. It's the love of brothers, the love of of, of close brothers. Some of you know what that's like. You have a, a close brother, a close sister that you care about one another. You die for that person. It's a brotherly love. It's a band of brothers kind of thing, right? He says, be devoted to one another with that kind of a love, a brotherly love. 
It's interesting, in this passage, the word for brotherly love is actually two Greek words that Paul puts together. And, and the, the word for, um, for love that Paul uses is not the normal word the New Testament uses. The word the New Testament normally uses is the word what? You probably know this. Agape. Agape, right, is the normal word. But there's another word used less often is the one he uses here, and it's the word that someone has mentioned up here, phileo. Um, and that's the word he uses here. Phileo is brotherly love, the, the love of uh, uh, affection, warmth, of, of, of kind of French, close friendship, that sort of thing. So he's, the first word he uses is phileo. The second word he uses is the word adolphos, which is the word for brother. So you've got phileo and adolphos, okay? So love and brother put together. And if you put those words together in the Greek, it becomes Philadelphia. Does that ring a bell? Okay. You've heard of this. United States, Pennsylvania, right? You're with me. Good. Very good. Okay, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a city of what? Brotherly love, you see? And so what Paul is saying here is as Christ's followers, the love we're shooting for is not just a love of duty. It's not just a love of, well, I'm doing the right thing because God told me. It's a love of true warmth and affection, the band of brothers kind of thing. That's the love Jesus wants us to have for one another. Now, you say, well, Mike, but what if I don't feel that towards someone? I'd say, well, let them go then. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, if you don't feel it, I think that the right thing to do is that we're always going to, by an act of our will, choose the right thing, right? So we're going to choose to love people and act in the loving ways, even if we don't feel it. And many times as we pray, as we ask God to change our heart, he'll warm our hearts up towards that person, even if we don't feel it. So you don't say, well, I'm not going to love you because I'm not feeling it. Right? No, we always choose to love. We'll talk about that in a second. But what I want you to catch is the love the Bible calls us to is a love of warmth. It's a love of affection. It's brotherly love. It's true love truly cares. Now, number two. The second, the second principle uh, goes like this. Oh, in fact, let's, hey, one more thing before we leave that. I want to go back there. One verse I want to look at, too, is not only does he say brotherly love, but look at verse uh, 15. He says, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now catch this. Do you what Paul is saying? He's saying we are to be emotionally connected to one another, right? In other words, that when you go through a hard time, it's not like, oh, whatever, hope it works out, that I am to feel it. And when you will go through a good time, I am to feel it, that I celebrate your wins, I mourn your losses because we're emotionally connected. You see, this is the true love that truly cares. Okay, number two. Now, uh, the second principle, in fact, there in your note sheet, before we go on, look at what Peter puts it. Just one more thing. The apostle Peter puts it this way. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. So this is the love God calls us to, that truly cares. Now, number two. This one sort of balances it out, and it goes like this, that true love takes action. And, of course, this is the other side, that love is it's not less than a feeling, but it's, it's, it's more than a feeling. Um, a true love is not just warm feelings uh, or warm affection. True love moves on to take action. In fact, uh, I was reading in a commentary a couple years ago on 1 Corinthians. A couple years ago, we did a long series on 1 Corinthians, and it was called changing the way you think. 
And, and so we got to chapter 13. It's a famous chapter on the love chapter. And in that passage, uh, just reading through commentaries, I came across a great statement by uh, Dr. Gordon Fee, who's just a leading Bible scholar uh, and the uh, Bible-believing scholar in the United States. And I put the quote there on your note sheet because it's so good. He says, love is behavior. To love is to act. And anything short of action is not love at all. So love involves feelings, but love is more than feelings. Right? Love is an action. It goes beyond. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in chapter 12 and verse 9. In fact, let's look at it. Chapter 12 and verse 9 says, love must be what? Sincere. Now, in the Greek, it literally says love must be not hypocritical. Okay? It actually uses the word that we, hypocritos, that we get our word hypocritical from. Love must not be hypocritical. It must be sincere. In other words, true love is more than image. It's more than words. It's more than good intentions. True love takes action. You say, well, what kinds of action? Well, in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul gives us several examples of how love acts. And so I want to give you three examples from this passage. Number one, the first thing that it does, true love does, is that true love puts others first. Okay, it's not selfish. So if you look, for example, at chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We read that. And then that's what he says next, honor one another above yourself. So, so true love puts others first. Uh, I call this giving the other person the big piece. Right? Uh, my, my daughter and son-in-law, when they're first married and they're dating, they used to go to Cinnabons. Didn't have a lot of money, so you go to Cinnabons. And um, the ultimate act of love in their relationship was when you get to the end of the cinnamon roll, right to the centerpiece. And who gets the centerpiece? And my son-in-law used to always reserve the centerpiece for my daughter. And when he told me that, I knew he was to be my son-in-law. Right? Like that is the ultimate sign of love right there. Right. So, so true love gives the big piece. It thinks puts others first. In fact, later on in Philippians, the Apostle Paul spells out what he's talking about here. It's on your note sheet. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Here's a good question to ask yourself. Would those who know you best, your family, your spouse, your kids, your work, uh, kind of people at work, co-workers, would they say you're a person who puts others first? You, do you give others the big piece or do we take it? And see, love takes action, all right? Now, a second example he gives is, has to do with our finances. And he says in 12, verse 13, one of the ways that true love acts is by reaching out to others in hard times financially and helping them. So in verse 13, he says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, okay? So one of the ways that true love acts is by using our financial resources, our homes, and so on to reach out and to love people in practical ways in times of need. Now, the early church was great at this. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Acts, but in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, the church is born. 
Uh, Peter preaches his first sermon. The Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people become Christ's followers, and they begin to form this new community, this new movement. And one of the marks of that movement, we're told that there were no poor people amongst them because they would each kind of share what they had, even sell some of their property to help meet practical needs. And this last week, I heard a great story that happened just a couple weeks ago in, in, in one of the life groups um, here at Rocky Peak. The story was uh, the guy, there's a guy in the group that uh, he, he was going, he'd kind of gone, was going through some rough times financially. He's a hardworking guy, uh, very responsible, but just with the economy the way it is, his particular business been hit hard. He was having a hard time making the rent. So he, he, he shares this with the guys in his group, and, and they all uh, pray for him. They ask him to pray, and they pray for him. And so uh, that week, during the week, God puts it on two of the men's hearts separately, individually, to give this man some money. Now, uh, a specific amount of money. Uh, to, you know, this man and this man, two separate things. And so they go to the leader of the group and say, hey, we're not sure what's up, but God just put it on my heart to give this amount of money and put it in the envelope, and, and here it is. And the other guy did the same thing. Neither one of them knew it did it. We, we don't want the guy to know at all that it came from us, just anonymously. Could you, could you pass it to him? So the guy comes to the group the next week. And he says he shares with the group an update. And he says, yeah, please keep praying for my finances. Things are really tight. He says, I was able to go to my landlord today and pay him half my rent. I couldn't pay the whole thing, but I was able to pay half the rent. So I continue to pray. And so after the meeting, the leader pulls him aside and says, here's a couple envelopes for you. What are these envelopes? Some guys in the group felt God specifically told them to give you some money. So here it is. The guy opens them up. They're exactly the other half of the rent. Isn't that awesome? Now, see, that's that's the body of Jesus in action, you see. True love takes action. It puts others first. It uses its funds to help each other during hard times, right? Um, Third example he's going to give us of love is in verse 16, and this deals with our prejudices. And I love this one, 12, 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. Get along. Um, Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Okay, do not be conceited. So, in other words, before we come to Jesus, we tend to hang out with people, for the most part, who are like us, right? Similar socioeconomic, educational, racial background. That's kind of what we do. We don't, we, we don't tend to hang out with people who are lower on the socioeconomic scale. But he says, hey, this is what love does. Love looks beyond that. And he says, Jesus is forming a community. He's creating this new community that we can have relationships and friendships with all kinds of people, below us, above us, different races, different backgrounds. We're all, we're all together in this. We can have these new kinds. Of, so that's one way that love works. It, it pushes us past our old prejudices. Now, this is one area where I'm really excited about what God is doing in Rocky Peak. I can see this doing, every year I see it changing, and every month I can see it changing. I see it happening at our monthly welcome desserts. We have the new people that God's bringing to Rocky Peak. I see it at our pastor's class, the people that are coming and saying, yeah, we want to partner with you in this ministry and we want to join the ministry. Um, and what I'm seeing is greater and greater diversity. And this is exciting to me. Um, and you see it in every, you see it socioeconomically, you see it racially, and it's just, I think it's a move of God. It's, and, and, you know, that God, and it's something we've been praying for for years, and God is doing it. Um, you know, this a uh, couple years ago, I had a friend of mine, who wasn't a friend at the time, was, we had a, a welcome dessert at our house. And, uh, and so, you know, brand new people come to the church. And, and so this one guy comes, he and his wife come, and, uh, and his name's Peter Chung, and uh, he's actually here today. Hi, Peter. You're in the front row. <laughs> see you down there. Good to see you. Right. I usually don't use names, but Peter, I pull out exception. Um, anyway... 
uh, Peter's become a good friend now, but he was there that first night, uh, this walk, this walk to Missouri. And, uh, and so we all go around the circle, and, and, um, and we're sharing, uh, like, uh, you know, why, how you came to Rocky Peak, why'd you come back? And so Peter shares, he says, well, you know, obviously, you know, uh, uh, I'm Korean. My wife, you know, Anne, she's Korean. So we're, we're Korean, you know, obviously. And, um, and he says, so, um, you know, we, to be honest, I mean, coming to Rocky Peak was a very intimidating experience for us. Because we'd never been in a room with that many white people at one time. He's <laughs> a little scary for us. He says, but it worked out pretty well. So far, so good. Everyone's been fairly normal. Uh, they all walk the same way, pretty much, you know. And uh, we had a good laugh because he shared that with the group. We just had a good laugh about that. Um, and, of course, you know, Peter and Anne have come on. They've become an integral part of the congregation now. And they're lead a life group and just, uh, just come to love them. I, I emailed Peter this week and asked him if I could use his story. And uh, he says, of course, uh, by the way, I'm blessed to know you. I've grown in so many ways in the last few years since that welcoming dinner. I love this next line. I finally found out the zip code to my heart. Isn't that awesome? And he says, uh, not only you guys walk normal, you guys are loving. And in my book, the white people at Rocky Peak is okay. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Way to go, Peter. That's a good job. Mm. But I love this. And what, here's what I'm seeing in our church month by month. Uh, week by week, year by year, God is bringing greater diversity to our church. And it's a beautiful thing. It's part of the move of Jesus. And, you know, I want to thank those of you especially that you've come and you are more of a, a kind of a racial minority. Maybe you're African-American, maybe you're Asian, maybe you're Hispanic, maybe you're um, uh, uh, Native American, Indian, or Samoan, or Filipino. And, and you've come and, and you can relate exactly to what Peter uh, is describing. You understand that feeling of walking in and saying, well, this is a little bit of a stretch for me. And yet you've stayed because God has called you to stay. And I can't tell you how excited I am. And I want to thank you for that because I'll tell you what, every time you stay, it makes it easier for the next person to come and to stay. And I'm just so, uh, so, so thank you for doing that. And then for those of us who here who are the white folk, uh, I mean, I want to thank you for the love you've shown because I think what Peter and Anne have experienced, just the love, uh, the caring, the acceptance that this we're one community here is what so many of you have reported uh, to me that you found. And so I'm just excited of that. I'm proud of that as a church. And I just pray that God will continue to do that. But this is what uh, Paul says, is that one of the marks of the community of Jesus is that we move past our old prejudices, right? It's a new, it's a new day. The world out there can't get along, but in Jesus from different backgrounds, different races, different upbringings, different education, different life experiences, we come together. And that's one of the beautiful things about our life groups is that we get to form these relationships with people that we have a lot in common, but things also that are different. Now, okay, so that's number um, two, that there's a love, um, love truly cares, but it also love takes action. He gives us some examples, some practical examples. Now, number three. Number three is that true love pursues peace. Um, a big part of, of love is learning just to get along with one another. And a huge part of the New Testament is dedicated to this. In fact, here's a great study for you to do. If you're ever like in your own personal time with God, like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to study or whatever, here's a great study. Pick a book of the Bible in the New Testament 
um, or just decide, read through the New Testament over a longer period of time and ask yourself the question, what does this book tell me about relationships? This is a great Bible study. Because once you put on those lens, you're going to find the Bible just leaps out at you every, almost every page, telling you lesson after. It's like a relationship manual. And, it, and of course, this shouldn't surprise us, because if the law of love is the rule that rules them all, you'd expect this. But often we don't see it that way. We don't, we don't, we don't recognize this, uh, what a high priority this is. So, so, for example, in this passage, in chapter 12, let's look at a couple examples. In chapter 12, in verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. You see that? So one of our callings is just to get along. What does true love look like? It looks like living in harmony with one another. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, in the world, no one gets along, right? I think your extended families or things like that, like in your, your job place, is that people can't get along. And so we come to Jesus. One of his top priorities is to say, we're going to learn how to do relationship a new way. We're going to learn how to be patient with one another. We're going to learn how to overlook each other's faults. We're going to look, learn how to forgive one another. We're going to learn how to handle conflict a new way. In the world, what do you do when there's conflict? Usually one of two things. You either leave the relationship or you attack the person, either verbally or non-verbally or gossip or whatever. So, so as Christ followers, one of his top agenda in love is to learn to pursue peace in relationship. Look at another verse, 1218. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. See that? Look at the next chapter, chapter 13. We'll jump ahead to a passage that we're talking about next week. Next week, by the way, just a warning. It's going to be rated R. Uh, the title, my working title is Sex and Drugs. And it, and it comes out of verse 13. Let's see what it says. 13, 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery. There's where the sex and drugs come. It, not in dissension and jealousy. Catch that. So a mark of living in the light, following Jesus, living in the light, is not dissension and jealousy. We're pursuing peace. And once you lock on to this, you see this is such a huge theme throughout the whole New Testament. For example, there in your note sheet, look at the verse there from Ephesians 4. It says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in what? In love. You see that? Now, now answer me this. Who do you have to bear with in life? you got to bear with people who are irritating, right? We bear with people who are frustrating. We bear with people who let us down and disappoint us. You don't have to bear with your best buddy you get along with. Great. Right? Hey, I'm going with John. What are you going to do? I'm just going to go bear with him. Just love being with him. It's hard to bear, but someone's got to do it. Right? No, you bear with people that are irritating. And what, here's what Paul is saying. In the body of Christ, there's going to be people who irritate you people who frustrate you, people who let you down, people who disappoint you. He says, and guess what? You need to bear with it. You need to overlook it. You need to learn how to forgive. You need to learn how to move towards the conflict. In fact, he says next in that passage, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So here's a question. 
in your life? Are you making every effort to keep the unity? When you have conflict with someone else at Rocky Peak, in your life group, uh, in a ministry, in the church in general, are you running from it? Are you attacking them? Or are you moving towards them and saying, let's do everything we can to maintain the unity? Is there any way we can work this thing out? You see, true love pursues peace. Now, finally, number four. By the way, that is so important. That whole principle is so important that in the future, hopefully the next year, we want to design a whole course here. There'll be a core course for us on just how to develop healthy relationships in the body, and especially dealing with this whole issue of conflict because we just see it as so critical to the health, the long-term health of the church. Now, number four. The fourth thing is that true love sets limits. And this one's a little different, but so important to balance the other three, that true love sets limits. You know, often in our lives, we think that if we truly love someone, we just kind of let them do uh, whatever they want. Uh, remember from a million years ago, the, some of you will remember that old, old, old movie, Love Story. You know, love means never having to say you're sorry. Just kind of letting people do whatever they want. You never confront. You never hold them accountable. You never challenge. You never rebuke. In the Bible, love sets limits. There are limits. For example, take your Bible. And look at Romans 12 again. Romans 12 and verse 9 and 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now I call this a love sandwich. He starts with, Let love be sincere. He ends with be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So we've got the top piece of the bread, bottom piece of the bread. In between, we've got the meat. And he says, how does the meat go? He says, uh, hate what's evil and cling to what is good. Do you know there's some things that love hates? Love has standards, right? Love draws lines. Love has boundaries. There's some things that, that, that love stands up to and says, no, we will not go there, right? Because it's the wrong thing to do. In fact, the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 13 on your note sheet, look what he says there. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Love doesn't rejoice with evil. It's been interesting to me all the backlash that we're receiving over the whole Prop 8 thing, you know? And there's sort of this thing out there, you see it in the placards and the marches and the things, that, that says love one another, right? Or there's kind of like Christians should love one another or, or uh, love your neighbor as yourself. You see the placards. You can't say no to this idea of homosexual marriage because, you have to, because you're supposed to love one another. You're violating your own principles, but what, the, what they don't understand is what, that love has standards. Love does not rejoice in evil. There, there's some things that love says, no, we will not allow babies to be aborted. That is not okay. You know, we will stand up, we'll see, we will protect. Love protects, right? There's so, no, it's not okay. Same-sex relationships, it's not okay, 
That's not an okay thing. We don't think it should become an institutionalized part of our love does not rejoice in evil. You see, love sets limits. Um, now, of course, you see this in the life of Jesus, don't we? That Jesus, well, I mean, not always a warm and fuzzy guy. Have you ever noticed? You know, Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes, leaders, hypocrites. And you're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. Woe to you, scribes, hypocrites, leaders. Man, you, you strain at the gnat. You swallow a camel. You see? So Jesus knew how to set boundaries. He knew how to say that no, we set limits. Now, uh, God models this for us in the Old Testament. They're in Proverbs chapter 3. Look at your note sheet. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights. So God disciplines us. He rebukes us. He brings pain into our life. Why? Because he loves us. And so if you truly love someone, there's times where you say, no more. I'm drawing a line. There's a time when love has to be tough, both to protect the person and to protect others around that person. Now, Paul gives us several examples of this in the New Testament, and we don't have time to walk through them all. But I, you know, like one by one, look them up. But I want to mention them so just very quickly because it's so important we catch this as a church, this love has limits thing. Uh, let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 5. These are all in your note sheet if you want to check them out later. Paul says, and this is, I want to put neon lights around this one because this is an important one for us as a whole church. That Paul says very clearly, if you have someone in your church who claims to be a Christ follower, now catch that. This is very important. They claim to be a Christ follower, and yet they're living in high-handed rebellion and sin against God. And he gives us examples. They're living in sexual immorality. They're slandering others. They're ripping people off in their business. He gives spe several specifics. He says, and they refuse to stop doing that. He says, you can't have them be part of your church anymore. You have to ask them to leave because you can't, you're not doing them a favor if you let them think that they're walking with Jesus you know, and coming to your church, well, at least they're here. And you're not doing them a favor. He says, no, don't even eat with such a person. You've got to either change or you can't come. You see, it's a limit, isn't it? Love sets limits. Uh, another example. Uh, in Second uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, Paul says, if you have anyone in your church and they're out of work or they're, they're struggling financially, but they're not willing to work, they're lazy, he says, don't feed them. Don't take an offering. Don't give them food. If a man will not work, he shouldn't eat. What's that? It's a limit. Love sets limits. You know, we're going to help you. We're not going to help you if you're lazy, right? Uh, another example, this is not on your note sheet, but 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul says to Timothy, good job. You're supporting the widows in your church. He says, but make sure they meet the following criteria. Don't support just any widow. They need to have lived a, a good life. They need to have uh, taken care of the poor. They need to have served well. They need a woman of character. Certain criteria before you support financially. Another one, Titus chapter 3. Paul says if someone comes to your church and they're causing dissension wherever they go, just causing squabbles, he says warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. You see, these are all examples that love has limits. All right, 
Okay, so let's, let's kind of wrap this thing up. So, so Paul says the big picture thing I want you to take with you today is that as Christ's followers, there's one rule that rules them all for us. There's one basic code of conduct. There's one ethic for us as Christ's followers. It's the ethic of love. It's a love that uh, truly cares. It's a love that takes action. It's a love that pursues peace. It's a, it's a love that uh, sets limits. But it's, there's one rule that rules them all. It's the law of love, okay? And what you find if you study church history is wherever the movement of Jesus has gone and touched people's lives, that it's always because of this love. In fact, you know, we started the day with the story of the plague and how in ancient times people would respond to plague. Remember that? And how that even their family and friends, they'd leave them behind just to die by themselves because they just, that's all they knew. They'd never seen anything different. But when the church of Jesus, that movement, began moving through the Roman Empire, that began to change. And they began to show the world a new kind of love that they'd never seen before. And it was a love that was willing to risk their life and lay down their life for others. In fact, um, uh, because they followed the one who'd said, I want you to love others as I've loved you, right? And so it was a whole new value on human life. And this last week, I came across uh, a a quote from a book, and it's there on on point number two, just to confuse you. I'm going to end with this. And it was written by a man named, uh, the book was written by a man named Carl Richard. And he wrote this book called 12 Greeks and Romans Who Changed the World. And he talked about what happened when, when someone became a Christian in the ancient Roman world. And I just want you to catch this. It's amazing. He says, by contrast, by converting to Christianity, it meant joining a family. Now catch that. We talked about brotherly love, didn't we? So he says it meant joining a family that offered physical economic, and emotional support, we've talked about all three of those today, in exceedingly troubled times. Early Christians shared their wealth freely with widows, orphans, the elderly, the unemployed, the disabled, and the ill. They placed their lives at grave risk, caring for victims of the plague and other natural disasters, while the pagans fled. They ransomed one another from barbarian captors. They distributed bread during famines. They visited prisoners and minors, the most wretched of all slaves. One group of Christians in Rome even sold themselves into slavery to raise the money to ransom their brethren from prison. They provided for the burial of the poor and were hospitable to travelers. Even the hostile emperor, whom the Christians called Julian the Apostate. Now, let me tell you about this guy. Julian the Apostate ruled in the middle 300s, the emperor of Rome. In the early 300s, the the, the Roman Empire had converted to Christianity. Now it's the middle of the uh, the 4th century. He's trying to turn it back, to go back to the pagan times. And and he's written this book to try to convince people to become pagans again. And here's what he says. He says, even the hostile emperor whom the Christians called Julian the Apostate complained these godless Galileans. Now, that's Christians. Uh, Jesus from Galilee, so he called them the Galileans. He called them godless because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. So these godless Galileans, they feed not only their own poor, but others while we neglect our own. And so this is the best thing you can say about to tear down the Christians. You can't stop these people. They're just feeding everyone, right? And so we've got to get rid of them. We've got to get back to our pagan ways. 
they're just loving everybody. You see? You, you catch what's going on here? And this is how the church of Jesus made a difference. This is how they changed their culture, is they just loved in extravagant ways. And this is the love that Jesus calls us to here at Rocky Peak. This is what it means to be part of his movement, that God would take us under his wings and he would teach us day by day, week by week, what does it look like to love one another and that we'd be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you're teaching us week by week about what it means to follow you. And today, Lord, we couldn't have a more important lesson, the law of love, the rule that rules them all, that we would love one another as you have loved us. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us as a church what it looks like to love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.